0: If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair backs around you somewhere, the black ones. We're going to be on page 902 in that one. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that home as a gift from us to you. So if you guys would, would you guys please stand as we read God's Word? We'll be in John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. John 16, starting in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me, says Jesus. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is it that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And then again, a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does this mean, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying, a little while you will see me, and again, a little while you will see me. You will not see me, and a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, verse 20, I say to you, you weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she is sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that the human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow right now, but you will. Um, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whenever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive so that your joy may be full. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because uh, because you have loved me, and I have believed that I have come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God."
1: Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a great reminder from our brother Brandon that you are infinite. You are holy. And we, your creation, we have rebelled against you. Our finite understanding thought that we could be infinite. But Lord, in your amazing love, you died for us. And Lord, there's an incredible amount of hope And we see that come out here this morning in this passage. And Lord, I ask, would you illuminate these scriptures? As I've prayed all throughout this week, would you allow me to stand in the gap and would your people hear your word this morning? Would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, this past Sunday, we had the closing ceremonies of the Olympics in South Korea. And I love the Olympics. There's something about the top athletes around the world coming together to compete, even if the NHL players couldn't be involved. Um, But I love the Olympics, the thrill to watch them. Specifically, the women's team, the women's hockey team that was golden, I also love the men's curling team. But what I really loved was that guy's mustache on that team. You guys know what I'm talking about? That was awesome. The Olympics are great. And I love the stories that kind of color the athletes' uh, lives and decisions in leading up to them competing. One story in particular has to do with the 1924 Summer Olympics. A now infamous Scottish runner, Eric Little, His story was so good that they made a movie out of it, Chariots of Fire. Just out of curiosity, who here has seen that movie? Yeah, it's a great movie. actually won Best Picture at the Oscars in 1981. But Eric Little, he was born to Scottish parents actually in China in 1902. His parents were missionaries there back in China, but as was a custom of that day, his parents sent him back to Scotland to get his formal education. And while he was in Scotland, he started running in grade school. And when he finished high school, he had began to uh, build national acclaim for his running abilities in the 100 meter. Now, as he was growing up, Eric Little held firm to his faith, and he developed strong convictions to run for the glory of God. He became infamous for as he would cross the finish line, he would hold out his arms, flip his head back, open his mouth as if he was offering each race, each win to the glory of God. One of the most famous quotes that he he said was, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric Little had great joy when he would run to the glory of God. And so he qualified for these 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. But Little found out that the 100-meter race was on a Sunday, and this was a big problem. See, Eric Little developed the conviction that Sunday was the Lord's Day, not a day for racing, not a day for games. And this didn't sit well with many people, his friends, his teammates, others on the British national team. They tried to get him to change his mind. They reasoned with him, hey, you can go to church on Sunday morning, and then you can run the race in the afternoon. But Little wouldn't have any part of that. He stayed true to his convictions, and he passed up personal fame and glory, as well as national recognition for Scotland, who at that point had never won a gold medal. He passed all that up. He was the heavy favorite in the 100 meter, almost a lock for the gold. But he appeased those around him, and he said, I will run in other events throughout the week. I will run in the 200 and the 400. And I'm sure many of you know the story, but if not, it actually ends in a way that we might not expect. And I'm going to conclude today's sermon with what happened to Eric Little in 1924 at these Summer Olympics. But there's something going on here with this story that I think we all can relate to. Namely, that we have convictions with our faith. Convictions that lead us to make decisions and want to honor God. But the world around us, the world doesn't like those convictions. And the world will do everything possible to not only have us change our convictions, but the world will try to rob us of our joy. So that's the main focus of today's sermon. We're going to be talking about joy. And this is what I'm proposing. Namely, that because Christ has overcome the world, we can have fullness of joy. Because Christ has overcome the world, we can have fullness of joy. But before we dive into today's passage, here's a little bit of background. We're at the tail end, the final words of Jesus' upper room discourse. I have loved our time in John chapters 14 through 16 here. Jesus is giving his final charge to his disciples. And one thing that I absolutely love about this is that this is the largest chunk of Scripture that we have that occurs in the shortest amount of time in Jesus' ministry. Last week, Aaron unpacked the confidence and hope that we have because of the promised Holy Spirit. And today, we need to keep those earlier verses from chapter 16 in mind Because all of us need to understand that the promised Holy Spirit is to come. And because of that, we can take heart and have joy. So I got three points for us today. Three points. Here they are. Fullness of joy comes through, one, a difficult departure. Fullness of joy comes through, two, direct access to the Father. And fullness of joy comes as we don't forget that Christ has overcome the world. So first point. A difficult departure. We're going to be in verses 16 through 22 there. And as we open up this passage here today, Jesus gives us a couple of time statements. A couple of a little whiles. The first a little while, he says, you will see me no longer. This is a foreshadowing to his death. That is literally 24 hours away. Less than that. The second a little while, and you will see me. This is a reference to his resurrection. And yet another reference that he's made time and time again to his disciples that the Son of Man will be betrayed. He will be rejected, killed, but on the third day he will rise. But his disciples, clueless, they have no idea what's going on. Jesus told them numerous times that he's about to leave and that this is a good thing. And it's supposed to be to their advantage that he goes away. But his disciples, they're stumped. And they begin murmuring amongst one another. What in the world is he talking about? What is he saying by a little while and you won't see me, but a little while and you will see me? They have no idea what's going on. But Jesus uses this as a teachable moment. And he responds in three ways with this teachable moment. He responds with a question, He responds with a statement of truth and then an illustration to drill that truth home. So the question is in verse 19. The statement of truth is with his truly, truly statement. And then he has this great illustration of a woman in childbirth in verse 21. And notice here that Jesus knows his audience like any good teacher does he understands that this is a highly emotional time for his disciples. He's using words like sorrow and anguish, but he's also using words on the other side of the spectrum that are to come, like joy and rejoice. In his illustration, (laughs) it's one of the most emotional experiences that any human can go through childbirth. I have three kids, I've been through it three times. It's wild. And actually the first time, the midwife said, hey, would you like to catch your son when he comes out? And I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so she's like, okay, come over here, get ready. And I'm like, I'm ready. And she's, you know, hey, when you see the head, when the shoulders come out, make sure you do this, twist them, flip them around, make sure you hold them up, whatever. And then he starts coming, and I'm just in la la land. I'm like, wow, this is my son. And you know, my wife's screaming at the top of her lungs. <laughs> and so when the midwife sees that I'm in la la land, she comes over, puts her hands under mine, pulls him out, whoop, whoop, and there he is, little Solomon. And all that agony that had happened, all that screaming, all that pain, And all that sorrow that I was experiencing, it was all. (laughs) La la land sorrow. Just kidding. Sorrow for my wife. All of that, it was all gone. Because the reality that my son had been born, my wife was no longer in pain, joy followed. It was an incredible time. So it begs the question what is joy? what exactly is joy? And I would say joy is simply gladness and cheerfulness, but it's not your typical fist-pumping cheerfulness. It can be, but it can also be a calm delight. The Bible Project is an animation studio out of Portland, Oregon, and they actually did a video on the word joy. I would encourage you to go watch that. But they gave a definition in that video, and this is what it is. They say joy is an attitude that God's people adopt, not because of their happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. I'll read that again for you note takers. Joy is an attitude that God's people adopt, not because of their happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So it's an attitude. It is a choice of mine. Yes, it's an emotion, but it's not an emotion based on your subjective feelings, but it's an emotion based on objective truth. Truth of what Christ has accomplished for His people. We often say this, my brother Aaron says this almost every Sunday, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118 verse 24. And notice the objective truth that the Lord has given us another day and we can respond with joy. I will rejoice and be glad in it. We can choose joy. And that's what Jesus is trying to drill home here. He is about to depart. It will be extremely difficult, a tough circumstance, but when the objective truth of the resurrection and everything that He has promised has been made clear, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, their sorrow will turn into joy. And it's a joy that no one will be able to take away from His disciples And it's a joy that no one will be able to take away from us. There are many things out in that world, in this world, that are going to try to rob us of our joy. It could be a tough circumstance, or it could be something as simple as criticism. Our joy gets robbed so easily. But I think one of the biggest threats to our joy is not outside of us, I think it's inside of us. And I think it's our feelings. oftentimes we mix up what we feel versus what is real. What we feel versus what is real. Let me explain. How do I feel about this? This sermon, this church, maybe a relationship you're in, spouse, your kids. How do I feel about this? How often do you you make decisions and evaluate reality primarily On your feelings at that moment. How often do you do that? If you let your feelings dictate your day, I want you to know you're not alone. You're not alone in that battle. This happens to us all the time. And we let the experiences of our lives and our emotional response to those feelings become the truth that we believe. But, ladies and gentlemen, This is not God's design. We are to let the truth of God's word dictate our feelings. And not just dictate, but transform our feelings. And don't get me wrong. Feelings are not bad. They're they're actually really good. God has given them to us. But they just need to be put in their proper place. C.J. Mahaney famous pastor, author, leader of the Sovereign Grace movement of churches, he helped me think through this. Here's a quote from his book, Christ Our Mediator. He says, And this is how serious it gets. In our arrogance, we invest our feelings, or lack thereof, with final authority. Rather than recognizing that our emotions are unstable, unreliable, often hopelessly controlled by selfish pride, and they are riddled with lies, lies that feel like truth. The mixing up of truth with feelings is something that I battle with on a daily basis. For those of you who are familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality test, I'm an F on that scale, which stands for feeler. But when I realize that I'm being led by my feelings, I notice that I have a choice. I have a choice that I can run with those feelings, or I can humble myself and preach gospel truth to myself. Let me give you an example. So about two years ago, my wife and I were pregnant with our third kiddo, and fear and anxiety of a miscarriage was coming. It was not only in my wife, but it was also in me. And you know, the statistics say one in four one in four pregnancies lead to a miscarriage. And then we read another statistic, one in three, and we were like, "This is the third kid. It's inevitable. We're going to have a miscarriage." And these things just started compounding on us. And we just walked through a miscarriage with not only a family member but also friends here in this church. It's very difficult. Very emotionally hard. And At that moment, I had a choice. I could let those feelings be in the driver's seat, or I could stop and preach gospel truth to myself. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't hard. Counsel was sought. But Psalm 20, verse 7, really spoke to me. It says, some trust in chariots and horses. Paraphrase, some trust in statistics but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And even if we did have a miscarriage, God is still good. Amidst through that, His goodness still reigns. Romans 8.28 We know that He works all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And then feelings followed that gospel truth. comfort, patience, and really joy. I checked myself, relied on the Spirit, not my flesh, and the grace of God followed. God gives grace to the humble, to those who not only willingly submit to His Word, but those who start with God's Word and let their feelings follow. So next time you notice that your feelings are in a driver's seat, or in the driver's seat, Just ask yourself the simple question, what is truth? What is truth right now? And that's why we need the grace of God, not only through his word and his spirit, but we also need his people, the church, because oftentimes we are so clouded with our emotions. We are so led that we can't discern what is truth and you can't discern what is truth all by your own. Let us take advantage of the means of grace of not only his word and his spirit, but this community right here. This is why we pump life groups all the time, not just to get people together and read the Bible and pray, but to really walk through life together. So in the face of a difficult departure, fullness of joy is available to us. And it's also available to us now that we have direct access to the Father. And that's my second point. Direct access to the Father, verses 23 through 28. In this section, Jesus identifies three different elements. Three elements that he's highlighted already in the Upper Room Discourse, as well as throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus himself refers to these elements as these things that I've spoken to you. There in verse 25. And these things or elements are praying in Jesus' name, clarity in figures of speech, and the Father's love for us. And we'll unpack these. So the first element, praying in Jesus' name, gives us direct access to the Father. And we see Him instruct His disciples here as He's done numerous times to pray in Jesus' name. Now let me remind you, This is not a magic trick to get whatever we want. No, when we pray in Jesus' name, this is a statement of truth, not based on our merits, but on Christ's merits on our behalf. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. And we are given direct access to the Father. God not only hears our prayers, but he answers them. Jesus' instruction for his disciples here is simply to ask simply to ask in his name and we are promised to receive and when we see God answer prayer we are filled with joy one of the most encouraging things in the Christian life is when you pray desperately for something when you pray for that family member or for that friend to come to know Jesus when you pray for physical healing when you pray for unity with someone here in the church and you see God answer that prayer. What joy. Jesus promises fullness of joy that comes through praying in his name. Are you asking? Are you asking? The second element, clarity in figures of speech. All throughout the Gospel of John, we see Jesus use physical realities to explain spiritual truths. We see this with his I am metaphors, such as I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd. But we also see it in some of these figurative speech metaphors that he uses, such as you must be born again. How in the world is anyone ever born again? Spiritual. As well as the the tough one at the end of John chapter 6 you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. In the world. Jesus is using these figures of speech in a veiled manner. And we who are familiar with them, we often take the understanding of them for granted. But it was absolutely baffling to his disciples and to his followers and to those who hear, heard him use these metaphors. And today, when people read the Gospel of John for the very first time, it's baffling to them too. But a change is coming. Jesus is preparing His disciples. A new era is dawning where everything will be made clear. But until He's given His life as a ransom for many, His resurrection appearances, as well as the Spirit being poured out, His followers will not understand these figures of speech. For us, on this side of the resurrection and Pentecost, We can understand these things. We have direct access to the Father, and we can know him deeply and intimately. This is what the ransom son accomplished for us. The gospel seeds that were sown in Jesus' ministry had become a fully developed plant in the apostles' ministry as the New Testament was being recorded, circulated, and expounded we see the Father's plan of redemption begin to unfold. What He was doing all the way back in the garden. What he was doing with the flood and washing the earth. And what He was doing with His people, the nation of Israel. This loving God was providing a way back to His people to know Him and to love Him. And it was through His Son, Jesus. That leads us to the third element the love of the father look with me again at verse 27 as we cherry pick this out for the love of the father for the father excuse me let's start again for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God at initial reading of this verse if you cherry pick it out one might think that our love is the source of God's love. But we have to remember the entire context of Jesus' upper room discourse, as well as the entire context of the New Testament. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Jesus already hammered this in chapters 14, if you love me, you will obey me, as well as chapter 15 with abiding in his love. And what we see here with the love of the Father is that His love precedes our love and His love also follows our love. Remember, God's love is not dependent on our love. Much like my three kids, I love them deeply. If they don't love me back, I will continue to love them just as deep. We need to keep His preceding love in focus or else we can fall into a dangerous and even unchristian way of thinking. Don't forget that God's love is not dependent on our love. Let me illustrate. Ten years ago, almost exactly to the day, I was a junior in college here at Colorado State. A friend of mine invited me to church And I was at a particular time in my life where I had hit a low and I had been searching for answers anywhere. So I said, sure, I'll give it a go. And so I find myself at this church service here in town and they're talking like Jesus, like I had never heard before. I grew up Catholic and the way that they were presenting Jesus was very, very different. They said that he was not only real, but that you could know him. You could have a personal relationship with him. And you want to know why the sole, the sole reason why I kept going to that church it made me feel good. It made me feel good. and it was while that I was attending this church that evidence of God's grace in him drawing me to himself were, were clear in my life. I ran into a teammate from the hockey team who then invited me to a Bible study and I got to sink my teeth into God's Word for the first time. But I also clearly saw my sin before a holy God, but that that sin did not prevent God's love for me. And before I loved God, He loved me before the foundations of the world. His love preceded my love. And it was then That I said, okay, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. It was very evident in my life that I had lived a sinful, rebellious life. But that sin was poured out completely on Jesus. And then the resurrection and everything changed. Not just in the world, but everything changed in my life. A man really rose from the dead and fullness of joy is available. And it was to me 10 years ago. So let me ask you this question. Do you know this joy? Do you know this Savior? You can. You can know Him today. You can know this joy today if you do not. You just need to repent of your sin and trust in Him you can have direct access to the Father. We're going to celebrate Jesus' resurrection and the joy that comes with that four weeks from today. Easter Sunday is four weeks from today. And this charge is for everyone here, but I want to speak specifically to the college students in light of my story. I'd like you to think about someone in your life who you might be able to invite to our Easter Sunday gathering. College is such a unique time in life where people are willing to take risks and make decisions that change their life forever. So I encourage you to think about who you might be able to invite, but don't just think about that person, pray. And as you have direct access to the Father, pray that God not only brings them here to this church building or here to this community, but that God draws him or her to himself We also have our Good Friday darkening service. And it's one of the most powerful presentations of the cross and the penalty that was paid for our sin. That could be a great opportunity to invite someone else. That small invitation could be the means of grace that transforms someone's life and gives them fullness of joy. What joy? So that leads me to our third and final point for today, a call to not forget, a call to not forget that Jesus has overcome the world. We're going to be in verses 28 through 33. If you got your Bibles, let's look at verse 28. Jesus summarizes the father's plan of redemption here when he says, I came from the father and I've come into the world and now I am leaving the world. And going and going to the Father. Four parts here. He came from the Father. A clear statement to Jesus' deity that he existed before the foundations of the world. And then he came into the world. A clear explanation of his humanity, the incarnation. And now he's leaving. His atoning death on the cross that he's about to bear. Was the atoning death necessary to satisfy God's wrath against sin? And then he's going to the Father. Jesus will rise from the dead, appear, and then ascend unto the right hand of God the Father. And in response, his disciples are like, yes, I finally get it. It's so clear. You're not using this figurative veiled speech, but you're speaking plain to us. Check it out in verse 30. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question. This is why we believe that you came from God. This is the the disciples last confession right before Jesus goes to the cross. You can see the seeds of joy that are beginning to take root. They're sprouting from the truth of who Jesus is. Their conviction of Jesus' deity is shining forth through the veil of His humanity. This is going to help them immensely. Not in the hours to come, but in the days and the weeks and the years after His resurrection. And Jesus sets the record straight. (laughs) No matter how strong their confession is, at this point in time, They're going to go astray. They are literally moments away from Jesus praying for them, walking across a brook, entering into the garden, seeing Jesus betrayed, arrested, and they're going to scatter. They're out of there. They're going to run away not only from their confession, but from their God. But Jesus isn't so concerned here with their response. He knows what's going to take place. His omniscience is in focus here as he's holding fast. He's holding fast not to what, not to what is going to unfold, but he's holding fast to the Father. Notice here that his loneliness isn't dictating his response. He knows that true loneliness is coming. The perfect fellowship of the Trinity will be broken on the cross. The father will leave the son and he he will cry out, "My my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus presses on and he gives this final charge in verse 33. Jesus's words are the last words to his disciples before his betrayal, arrest, and death. And he doesn't want his disciples to forget them. I often say last words are lasting words. We see this all throughout Scripture. Whether it's Moses, right before the nation of Israel enters into the Promised Land, or even to Timothy, as Paul, his father in the faith, writes the letter 2 Timothy. These final instructions have a lasting effect on the hearers. And they have a lasting effect in our life. Jesus states that tribulation will come. This tribulation could be described as trouble or oppression or persecution. Whatever the pressure is that comes as a result of living in a Genesis 3 world, it's a threat to us. Yet peace is promised in the face of this tribulation. Peace is encouraged here, and it's a tranquil tranquil state of one's soul. The peace that comes from fearing nothing that comes from God because of His love for us. And a peace that is content with whatever our lot. The only peace that surpasses understanding, it can only come from God and His Spirit. And it's rooted in what has been done for God's people. And the final charge take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus' statement here of overcoming is a statement of victory, of triumphant victory. But notice, it's very peculiar here because He's yet to go to the cross. He has confidence in the face of such tribulation. And as the author of Hebrews puts it in 12.2, Jesus has joy here. It is for the joy that was set before Him that He endured the cross. Jesus knew the way to glory was through the cross. He knew what was set before Him, the agony, the suffering, the loneliness. Yet, He not only has peace and contentment, He has joy. A small illustration of a friend of mine We'll say his name's Freddie. I ran into Freddie about a year and a half ago. I hadn't seen him for six plus years. Freddie's a little bit older than me. I said, Freddy, how you doing, bro? Great to see you. We had some chit-chat caught up. And then I asked him, hey man, how's your wife doing? He says, oh man, it's been a tough go with the marriage. We're actually in the process of getting a divorce. And I'm just like, oh, way to go, Daniel. You put your foot in your mouth again. And he sees that I'm dejected. And his words afterwards, after seeing that, he said, bro, it's okay. I have a choice each and every day, and today I choose joy. It's like, wow, where does that come from? It comes from the Spirit. So whatever tribulation the world is throwing at you, whatever threat that is attempting to crush you, to insult you, Suffering, or even how you might be affected by death, I plead with you don't let your joy be robbed by these things, but take heart and look to Jesus, the one who actually has the power to overcome the world, and the one who did overcome the world for us. So Eric Little went to the Paris Olympics there in 1924. He didn't run on that Sunday, but he ran into he in two other events, namely the 200 and the 400. In the 200, he won a bronze. Not bad, but the triumph came in the 400. And just before that race, he received a note from a British trainer. And the note stated, the old book says, him that honors me, I will honor, wishing you the best success always. A reference to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. So, Little shouldn't have even been in the final heat. There he was. He drew the worst starting position of the race. But that didn't phase him. When the gun went off, he took a commanding lead. Pretty typical for a 100-meter sprinter. Not so typical for a 400-meter runner who's supposed to pace themselves. And while everyone was waiting for him to fade, his lead kept increasing and increasing and increasing. And as he head head into the final curve and that last stretch, his arms went out, his head back, and he offered the race to God. He won. He was golden. A triumphant, joyful victory. He was fast and he felt God's pleasure. Eric Little's story doesn't end on that racetrack there in Paris. The following Sunday, he actually was asked to uh, run in two other events, relay events actually. But he wasn't there on the track. He was actually at a church in Paris preaching the Gospel with that gold medal around around his neck there. And then he went home to Scotland and after a little bit of time he went to the family business he became a missionary in China and he used this platform this triumphant victory platform to share of the triumphant victory that Christ has accomplished for his people and we like Eric Little can share in Christ's victory amidst Jesus' difficult departure we are given direct access to the Father and it's a call to not forget that Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the reality that your Son has accomplished fullness of joy for us. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That is a truth that we can experience here and now because your presence dwells within us but not yet fully until that day that we go to be with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would help us understand our feelings, that you would help us understand the love that you have for us, and that you would help us to understand the joy that we have for you overcoming the world. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.